You are listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Erica Berry, author of Wolfish, Wolf, Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. So this is from the beginning of the first chapter, and it's called Adventure versus Wolf. It was winter when she crossed. Maybe she found a bridge of ice. Maybe she snuck across Brownlee Dam. Or maybe there was only current. Maybe she just swam. At the depths of Hell's Canyon, the river that separates Idaho and Oregon is milky and knotted with rapids. At one end, over the reservoirs just south of the dam, the water is nearly a mile wide. The wolf would have chosen her path carefully. She did not flirt with risk, not like a coyote. She knew what she could do. A wolf can swim up to eight miles at a time, paddling like a dog after a stick, the skin between her toes, enough webbing to help push her through a current. The snake is the largest tributary to the Columbia River, its waters an echo of the agriculture it has slipped through, heading west from Wyoming. The wolf could not know it, but all through the river there were traces of cow, fertilizer, sediment, manure. Water that had once been blue was now often sea glass green with algae. It was 1999, and the wolf was in the belly of Hell's Canyon, the deepest gorge in North America, 2,000 feet deeper in some places than the Grand Canyon. From the sprawling plateaus and high pastures above, the canyon feels unfathomable, as if the northeastern border of Oregon has just unzipped rocky, sagebrush-strewn cliffs to reveal a world over a mile deep beneath mud-slick layers of limestone and lava. 300 million year old products of underwater volcanoes. This is the homeland of the Nez Perce, the Nimipu, who knew the canyon as a place of shelter carved by coyote. Their stories tell how Creator made Rai Coyote the teacher of human beings, but the wolf, He Min, belonged her too. This was her land. When white men appeared, those who would later hunt the region's wolves all the way to extinction, they had taken this same route, and the Nez Perce had named them for it. Suyapu, they called the invaders, across the water people. Now, as the wolf shook the river from her back, droplets constellated in the frozen air. She was a yearling, nearly full-grown, the runt of her litter, almost waist-high on a grown man, her weight around 65 pounds, her coat the gradient of stone, the color, perhaps, of that day's January sky. Her winter under fur was so thick the cold did not even reach her bones. She was a descendant of the Canadian wolves reintroduced to Idaho just a couple of years earlier as part of an effort to restore the American gray wolf populations that had been slaughtered to extinction in the early 20th century. Around her neck, the radio collar given by the Idaho Department of Fish and Wildlife was a dull and nearly forgotten weight. B-45, that's what they were calling her, the 45th wolf to be collared in Idaho, one node of a federal wolf recovery program that the Nez Perce tribe was working to help implement. With each step, her saucer-sized paws splintered the lattice of icy crystals that frosted the earth. Turning tail to the river, I think the main sort of thing that happened was my mother one day got very, very ill. And I was living on the East Coast in Maine and guiding a canoe trip. We were out in the woods and I was getting these calls like she's in the hospital. We don't know what's going on. Her fever is very high. They were very worried. And eventually they figured it out. And this problem was that she'd been bitten by a tick and had gotten very sick. And an epidemiologist in the hospital just kind of happened to say offhandedly, we have so much more illness in the landscape because 
there's rodents and we don't have predators keeping in control the smaller levels of this ecosystem. If we had more wolves, we would have less tick sickness. He just said it offhandedly, but it was the first thing that made me think about the ways that the wolf was connected to my own body and that suddenly we were existing in this interconnected ecosystem way. I was probably 21 at the time. It had never really occurred to me that the presence of wolves, of course, was not just an aesthetic thing that was beautiful to imagine. It was actually tied to these ecosystem dynamics that have implications for the health of my species as well. And so I began to study wolves academically. I think for so long, I thought I'm only going to write about the real wolf. That's the most important thing. We've had too many stories. And yet I've gotten to a point where I just think we are living in a world where any story that comes out of my mouth is shaped by these other stories I've heard. I began to think of it as a shadow wolf. I have a shadow wolf attached to my sense of the wolf. You have a different one. Someone in India has a different version of the wolf. And it's useful to parse that and to remember that my version of the wolf is shaped by all these stories. And to be able to have a better relationship with the wolf, I felt like I needed to examine those stories to untangle them and try to see what is the wolf that I'm seeing here and how do I untie that shadow wolf from the real wolf and honor and acknowledge the fact that these stories maybe have some reality. The time that we had these fairy tales with wolves in Western Europe, there were some sort of legendary wolves that were preying on people. But why was that? Because of war and these different, again, human factors were causing these relationships. Fairy tales are rooted in ecology, just like stories about biology, stories about how we name wolves are rooted in human choices. Science is tied to colonialism. Stories about how people interact in the landscape are very tied to who those people are and how they feel. Are they meant to feel that they belong there? Um, what sorts of violence have they experienced on that land? And so to me, it was important to remember that environmental stories are also human stories, that humans are also animals. And just return us to, I'm just another member of the ecosystem like the wolf. And I, I wanted to mix those things paradoxically by showing the ways that the wolf has been represented to try to represent it better. At first, I was so skeptical of it. I have to admit, I was uncomfortable with the way that I felt like people were anthropomorphizing OR7. So basically, this wolf became a somewhat international symbol. There were headlines in the UK. There were people entering the contest from Nigeria and Finland and this contest to name this wolf. So basically, an environmental nonprofit said, we're going to make this wolf too famous to kill. And so Newsweek referred to this wolf as the most famous wolf in the world. There was a period where there were Twitter accounts following the wolf, Facebook accounts. There was bumper stickers that said, OR7 for president. It was really this moment where the wolf was larger than itself. And I at first told myself I was just going to watch how people were watching this wolf because it said something really interesting about what we expected and what we desired the natural world to do for us. This wolf was looking for a mate in a part of the state where there were no other wolves. And so there were headlines like, Valentine's Day is coming, OR7 still single, that kind of thing. And I, that was really about human loneliness, right? OR7 doesn't know about Valentine's Day. And it highlighted the absurdity of us playing out our own dramas with this rom-com related to a wolf. And at the same time, though, OR7 became a case study for me where because it was collared, I could follow him in a way that I couldn't follow other wolves. And there were these stories. And I'll give an example. I read about the Chips fire in Northern California it was a huge wildfire that OR7 walked up to as it was burning. 
And at first, scientists were like, why is this collared wolf going toward this bird? And of course, it's because a wolf will sometimes go towards a fire because prey is escaping. And this becomes a very strategic way to hunt. I don't know that would have resonated for just this is a fact about wolves. But when I was following this one wolf and imagining what it was like to be this one wolf hunting alone, this vulnerability of a disperser and going towards this fire, I felt like I could visualize him in a different way. OR7 did travel thousands of miles, became a very important figurehead of wolf recovery. Was OR7 inherently special? No, in a lot of ways not. He just was trackable. And I think there is a value in looking really closely at one body, one animal, and saying, what does this one life look like? What is the shape of this? In the way that I think looking at one human life can be valuable, even if that human is not president or a famous person. One of the things that jumped out to me was that I thought predator and prey were these fixed states. And I was relating to feeling that had a, an experience being grabbed on a street by a stranger I didn't know where I really felt like I'm prey in the landscape. And at the same time, of course, learning about wolves helped me realize all the ways that predator or prey are these categories that maybe pass over us. We're sort of oscillating between them. So I heard a story, for example, about in Wyoming, a biologist was following a large alpha wolf. And one day it was collared. And so he'd been tracking it. And one day he got a signal that the collar showed a mortality signal. The wolf had died. And he tromps through the snow to find it. And this big wolf is in the middle of a field surrounded by a spattering of blood. And a circle. He's trying to figure out what has happened. And there's these sort of two holes in the wolf's side. And after a minute, he realizes that an elk had skewered the wolf. There'd been some sort of hunt between these 600 pound elk and this really strong wolf. And the elk had won and it had grabbed the wolf and spun it around and flung it over and the wolf had died. And in that situation, who was the predator and who was the prey? And his point was the prey can be a lot more powerful than we give it credit for. And I thought that was actually quite helpful for me to think about in human contexts as well, the ways that I had power and especially as a human. And this is again where like identity comes in. There's these layers of power that inform fear and we're wrong about fear all the time. Just because I fear a wolf doesn't mean it actually poses a threat to me. Just because I think something is predator doesn't make it safe. A wolf who I read as predator is actually more likely to be killed by a human, much more likely than for it to kill me. I think it's the last 18 years in North America, we've had 12 wolf attacks. Only two of those have been fatal. So the threat that wolves pose is so low. Far more people, people are killed every year by dogs, by toddlers with guns, by falling vending machines, by ladders, right? And so a wolf doesn't occupy anywhere that same level of actual threat. So I think it was just useful to remember that just because we think something is predator, that doesn't actually mean very much, maybe. In a way, I really try to differentiate between animal predators and say some of the human encounters that I had that really scared me. I think they're different. It's important to say that. And at the same time, when I was younger writing this book, I began research in my early 20s and I was thinking, it was all about evaluating fear in my head and how can I see if this thing is actually going to be a threat to me. And I think now I'm understanding, of course, that we can't always do that in life. And really, we're actually trying to live beside the uncertainty. And what does it mean to exist beside that which we do not know? We're mortal beings. We're animals. What is a wolf, but actually just like a quite fragile animal across the landscape? And that's us as well. And I think part of working on this project and thinking about the natural world was understanding my own fragility that I have to just accept about being alive. And there's a beauty in just accepting that in perhaps a Buddhist sense of death is a part of life. And that still means that I'm going to go out and explore, I think. In my most fearful moments, I felt like the world had gotten a lot smaller for me and I didn't want to go do things. And it's back to feeling really wide and 
the last thing I'll say about that is I think so often when people maybe have anxieties or fears about any category, we think, oh, I just have to figure out how to grow out of this, grow out of this. But I think one of the things I realized was the importance of figuring out how you grew into it. And if you imagine what are the wires that we can trace in our brains that determined why I feel the certain way. I was going to a cabin to do research for this book. I was just going to write and people kept telling me, don't get murdered, don't get murdered. As if that was the sort of most important thing that could happen with a woman going into a cabin in the woods. And that was a harmful narrative. Little Red Riding Hood is harmful, not just to the wolf, who's very unfairly portrayed, but also to this girl who's told she's going to go meet a predator. She's going to make a bad choice. It's her fault. That was the story of girlhood that I inherited. And I think in that way, untangling these narratives about fear are important both for non-human animals and for human animals. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.